Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Father, we just want to uh, we just want to see Jesus this morning. As we hear of him and his beauty, his greatness, especially this time of year, might we be drawn to him. Lord, we want to exalt our dear Savior's name this morning. Help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be spending most of our time this morning in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, and so if you have your Bible or you want to use the Pew Bible, let me encourage you to, uh, to follow along, Hebrews chapter 1, and basically we're looking at the text that Bruce has read for us already, especially the first three verses. <clears throat> I can remember many years back now celebrating my... Uh, my first Christmas as a new Christian, that was back in the late 1960s, and some friends and I uh, traveled to, to New York City to a Calvary Baptist Church in uh, Midtown Manhattan to hear Dr. Stephen Olford, a great orator of the, the scriptures, and especially as he spoke in his, uh, I guess it was a British or Welsh accent. He preached on the, uh, the birth of Christ. And I met him after the service and told him how much I appreciated his message and how as a, as a new Christian, Christmas had taken on a, a brand new meaning or brand new significance in, for me and in, in my life. Well, of course, many Christmases, so many Christmases have uh, come and gone since then. And perhaps it's the same for you as well. But I hope Christmas uh, has always somehow maintained that, that significance to you, that specialness. Uh, the Christmas narratives as presented to us in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel that will never grow tired are so over-familiar with them that we would just say or think, ah, I've, I've heard that before, know it well. Our culture, of course, has removed almost every vestige of Christ at Christmas time. But remember that Christ is the only reason that we celebrate. He is the only reason for us to celebrate Christmas. I preached in, in a church some years back and it was at Christmas time, and um, just before the service, a young father came up to me, and he was worried somewhat, and he was concerned. Uh, he asked me, was I going to tell the congregation that Santa Claus was not real? And I thought that was, that was mighty strange of him, but then he said, you know, we haven't told our young daughter yet that Santa Claus is not real. My uh, Jesus is the reason for our Christmas, right? Jesus is the reason for our 
celebration. Well, Christmas is over, and I guess this coming weekend we'll be taking down our, uh, our decorations, or perhaps you've done that already, and we'll uh, put them away for another, another holiday season. But this morning I want to take one final look at Christmas, but not from Matthew's perspective or Luke's, but from a different perspective, and that is from Hebrews chapter 1, because here is Christmas from, from God's perspective, from God's perspective, from his viewpoint, in just a few verses that he gives us in Hebrews 1. Uh, it's about Christmas, but the baby's not there, uh, the manger's not there, uh, the shepherds are not there, none of the, the familiar things of the Christmas story are there at all. But what the writer is doing is more or less taking the person of Christ and holding him up to the light as he was a, a prism or a precious jewel that we might see the light refracted or reflected through him, that we might see his glory, and his beauty. And so three things I want to leave with you this morning from the text. Number one, from verse one, God's preparation for Christmas, his preparation for Christmas. Secondly, from verse two, God's presentation of Christ, his presentation. And then thirdly, we'll spend most of our time at this this morning, <clears throat> the preeminence of Christ, his preeminence, how he surpasses everything and everyone else. Verse three and four. But first, God's preparation for Christmas. Verse 1 says, God, who at various times, in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. And so the writer here, possibly Paul, is reminding us how throughout the Old Testament, all through Old Testament history, God was speaking to the Jewish people. He refers to them as the fathers. But they're the Jewish people. And he did so through the prophets of their day. And he did so in, in different ways and at different times. And really, when it, you come down to it, God spoke to people through the, all the 39 books of the Old Testament. Some of those were the historical books. Some were the poetic books. Some were the prophetic books. Some were uh, the books of the law, law-oriented, so to speak. But all the way through, giving us hints as to what this coming man, Messiah, would be like. Even as to exactly where, in what village in Israel he would be born. And sometimes God spoke to the writers of the Old Testament audibly. They heard him, sometimes through a dream, other times through a, a vision or two, uh, at least once through a, a burning bush, or even through stone tablets containing the law. In some different ways, God was revealing himself to mankind. And little by little, God was doing that through the history 
of all of the Old Testament, little by little revealing more and more and more of himself. We call that progressive revelation. But all that was preparation for for God's ultimate and final revelation of himself in his Son, Lord Jesus Christ. God would become a man that everyone could see the great and full revelation. Well, verse 2 tells us God's presentation of Christ. So he has spoken in verse 1, and then verse 2 says, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And he goes on from there, describing his Son. God stops speaking in in fragments here and there, and instead presented a complete or a full revelation of himself. And so Jesus becomes God's ultimate and full revelation of himself, who he is, what he's like. He reveals God by being fully God himself. That's what the Apostle Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 2, when he says, In Him, Jesus, in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in human form. In other words, everything that God is, Christ is, it's all found in the person of Jesus. John's Gospel, he says, No one has ever seen God. Of course not. No man has ever seen God. Then it goes on to say that his only begotten son, but as one reference puts it, but God, the one and the only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Or he's in the one who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. The unique one, the one and only, has made God known. Well, quickly then, we move on to the next portion of my text, and that's the preeminence of Christ. And that's, again, where we spend the bulk of our time this morning. The preeminence of Christ, how and why he surpasses everything else in history and everyone else in history. What makes him so great? What makes him over everyone else preeminent overall? So once the writer presents Jesus as the Son of God, and he's already done that in the text, he then gives us a summary of how his Son is preeminent. So here then is the true identity of that little baby, the little infant in the manger. Who is this one in the manger? Verse 2, whom he has appointed heir of all things. The baby in the manger is the heir of all things. God the Father planned that Jesus would become his heir. It's planned that way through all of eternity, to inherit everything. So remember here, Jesus was Jewish. And the Jewish inheritance law said the firstborn son would receive the wealth, the entire wealth of the father's estate. That's going to be given to Jesus. 
In Psalm 89, the writer says, I will make my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. That's part of the inheritance where Christ becomes or will become king. As the son, he will be the highest and the greatest king that the world has has ever seen. Uh, in, In Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, it says the nation's will be his inheritance. All the nations of the world will belong to him, and he will rule them in justice, equity, and might. All creation will belong to him, because he is the only begotten son. And by the way, only begotten son has nothing to do with with his origin, because he always existed He was never created. But the the one and only Son or the only begotten Son is talking about His his uniqueness in the world. He is unique. He is different from, from everyone else. He is the one and the only, only begotten Son of God. Who's the baby? He's the the heir of all things. But notice he goes on in the last part of verse 2, through whom also he made the worlds. Not only is Jesus the heir of all things, but he is the one who made the worlds. And the the word worlds there does not simply mean the, um, the universe and the earth and the planets and everything else, but it literally means the ages. He is the creator of the ages. Not only did he create the physical universe, but he created time itself and space itself and energy and all matter. It's all created by Jesus because he is the creator of all things. And of course, he does it with no effort whatsoever. He simply speaks everything into existence by the word of his mouth with no effort. But of course, he does it with great, with great care, with great thought, with design, and with great purpose. Hebrews 11 says that the worlds were framed by his word. John in his gospel in chapter 1 says, without him, without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. He's the creator of everything. Colossians 1 says something really interesting. All things were made not only by him, but for him. All of creation is made for Jesus' sake. He makes it all for himself. But then scripture goes on later to tell us that one day he will remake the earth, the heavens, and the universe. But who is the baby? He's the one who made the worlds. Who is this baby in the manger? Verse 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory. The brightness or the radiance. He is the radiance or the brightness of the glory of God. In other words, he expresses the greatness and the majesty and the brightness of God. 
course, no one can see God. No one ever will see God. The only brightness or radiance that reaches us from God is through his son, the one and only, the unique son, Jesus. And that glory was seen for, oh, ever so brief a time on the Mount of Transfiguration. James, Peter, John were there and suddenly they saw Christ transfigured. And they saw the brightness of the, ra- or the, br- or the radiance of God shining through him. It came from the inside out. It wasn't like a light shining on him. No, it was the light from within him that was being expressed physically outward. It was transfigured with the Shekinah glory of God. Disciples thought it was so great, they wanted to stay there and just enjoy his presence. The radiance, glory of, of God. And, of course, that will be the Jesus that we will see one day with our, with our physical eyes. So he's the brightness, or the radiance of the glory of God. Who else is he or what else is he? Verse 3, he is the express image of his person. The baby in the manger is the express image of his person. Uh, Kenneth Wiest in his expanded translation of the New Testament puts it this way. That Jesus is the exact reproduction of his essence. Essence being who God is. All of what he is, his very being, his very essence. Christ is the exact replica, the exact reproduction of that. The exact representation of his being. In other words, he is the icon of God. He's the one and only. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when you're able to look at Jesus, even on the pages of Scripture, we see what God is like. We see what God, what He's like, how He thinks, how He relates to people, what His character, what His nature is like. He's the icon of God. And He's exactly the same in His being as the Father. And yet He is distinct from, separate from, the Father. Don't get confused by the term Son, Son of God, as Jehovah's Witnesses get confused by it. They think the Son is something less than God, something less than the Father. No, when when the writers of Scripture refer to the Son of God, they're saying the one who has the same essence as God. And so Jesus, as the Son, has the same essence as the Father as his father does, and yet he is distinct from the father. So the son is a statement of deity. It's God's proclamation that Christ is God himself, uh, nothing less than that. He is the son. Familiar text from Isaiah, I think it was read in our hearing last Sunday morning from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. But notice the difference between the two. Unto us a child is born. Yes, 
Jesus was born as a child, born as a baby, an infinite. But he wasn't born as a son. He was given as a son. And all that means essentially is this. He was a son before Bethlehem. He was the son of the eternal God before he became part of humanity, before he took on human flesh. Who's the baby in the manger? Verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the one who upholds all things in this universe by simply the, the word of his power. Means he has ultimate authority over everything, everywhere. He told the disciples that much at the end of the book of Matthew. All authority is given unto me in heaven and on the earth. Not only is he the creator of everything, he is the sustainer of everything. In other words, he's the one who keeps everything in the universe just moving along the way it's supposed to. God speaks in, in Genesis chapter 8 and he says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. Well, what causes it to stay that way? Jesus does, according to, um, according to the book of Colossians. He's the sustainer of everything. He keeps the universe running along. He keeps our earth in a stationary orbit around the sun. If that ever changed, even just a tiny bit, we'd either freeze to death or we'd fry to death. But he sustains it. The uh, same is true with the moon's orbit around the earth. If that ever changed, then the tides would change and we, we'd be in havoc if that ever occurred. He perfectly maintains the balance of the universe. Well, that's that little baby who lies in a manger. The one who is eternal God, he did that. Who's the baby in the manger? Again, in verse um, 3, when he had by himself purged our sins. Purged our sins. Of course, he was, was born to die. That's why he came. By his death, he brought about the cleansing of our sin. Because that's what we needed. That's what we all needed. And only Jesus could do that. It's absolutely what we needed. And that's why we needed Christmas. There's no cross without a cradle. The cradle comes first. It's what we needed first. Hebrews 9 verse 28 says that he, Jesus, was offered once, once to bear the sins of many. And he had to die because the wages of sin is death. Not his sin, but our sin. He had to die for sin. And then to pay the penalty of sin for others, he had to be perfect. He had to be morally perfect. Or somehow he would have had to deal with his own sins. But of course he was perfect. But then 
since no one in the world is without sin, then he had to come from somewhere else to the earth, to this world. And yet he needed to be a man. Someone who comes from heaven, but is a man at the same time. And in order that he might die in the place of all men and women. And no animal sacrifice would be sufficient. The sacrifice of God had to be a man. But a morally perfect man. And of course, that's the baby in the manger. He purged our sins. Who's that baby in the manger? The end of verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. That, that's God, the Father, on high. That's one of the themes um, that runs throughout the entire book of, of Hebrews. In chapter 8 and verse 1, uh, the writer says, This is the main point of the things that we're saying. We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus. And then in chapter 10, verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, then sat down at the right hand of God. And then in chapter 12, we're to look unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. And it says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand of God is a place of, of honor. It's a place of great honor, of great authority, of great preeminence. The right hand. That's why Paul in in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2, he's able to say this, that God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He's been exalted in his name, and he sits at the, the, the right hand of God. <clears throat> when he went to heaven, when he ascended to heaven, Jesus did what, what no other high priest in the Old Testament was able to do. You know what that was? Sit down. He was able to sit down. The Old Testament priest could never do that. First of all, there was no chair in the Holy of Holies, for him to sit down. But also, beyond that, because his work, the work of the high priest, was never finished. It was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and year after year after year, it was unending, because none of those sacrifices were sufficient to take away sin. It only, they only covered sin for such a brief additional period of time for one year. Their sacrificing was never finished. It was always, always temporary. But Christ's work, his redemptive work on the cross was done 
just once. Hebrews says, once for all time. And that's why Jesus, when he hangs on the cross, can cry out, it is finished. It is finished. And the word there is tetelestai. Tetelestai, it's, a, it's an accountant's term, an accounting term, meaning it's paid in full. Nothing else needs to be done. Nothing can be added. No other payment for sin can be made. The price is paid, paid in full. And it's in the perfect tense in the language, meaning it has been and will forever remain finished. It's done forever. Philip Bliss, hymn writer, put it this way, lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. And now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, he finishes by saying, hallelujah, what a savior. See, that's the baby in the manger that we remember this Christmas. So let me ask you, how was your Christmas this year? How was it? I hope it was good. You might say, oh, it was great. It was great. Lots of presents. Spent lots and lots of money. Here on the news that the Saturday before Christmas was the biggest shopping day in the history of, of humanity, I guess. Lots of money spent. We had lots of company, family, great food, beautiful tree. Oh, yeah, and Santa Claus was there somewhere. Is that true at your house with your, if not your children, then grandchildren? But where was Jesus, I wonder? Where was he? Where was he in, in our celebration? Uh, was he at your house this Christmas? I hope so. The one who is the heir of all things. The one who made the worlds. The one who is the, the radiance of God's glory. The one who is the exact image, the icon of God. The one who upholds all things. The one who purged our sins, the one who now sits at the Father's right hand, he is our great and eternal, eternal high priest. I think anything less than Jesus is insufficient. Anything less than Jesus, and we're missing something, because he's the only reason we celebrate Christmas. You'd never get that idea from anything you'd see in advertising or on television, would you? It's anything but the birth of Christ. Anything but. And so if, if he wasn't remembered at your house this year, make it a point to remember him at your place next Christmas. If God permits you to be here for another Christmas. In closing, I need to ask you the question, do you know him? Do you know the Lord Jesus for yourself? And have you experienced the, the forgiveness of your sin? That's the, that's the greatest. That's the greatest gift. 
you can experience that. First, if you'll recognize that the, that baby in a manger was eternal God, become flesh, grows to manhood, and then takes yours and my sin upon himself and pays the eternal penalty that we rightly deserve to pay, and he, he dies for us, dies for our sin. And if you'll, Scripture calls it, if you'll repent, change your mind about God, turn from sin to him and trust Christ and his work on the cross as being sufficient payment for your sin. Your work is insufficient. We have no work that's good enough. It's all Christ's work. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's look to the Lord. Father, 